Hello and welcome to episode 20 of This Connect. 20 is a big number for us, right? It's going to become one. Because. Because. <laughs> because this is the last episode of uh, This Connect. Season 1 is closing. <laughs> so what are we doing? So what we're going to do is excluding the Ionic 5 and the Super Meteor podcast episodes because those were vehicle-centric. Yeah. We went back into the comments and we looked up interesting comments through all the other 18 episodes. Mm. And uh, it's not a QA. and a I think mm. there's lots of interesting points that you guys have brought up and we'd like to discuss those uh, in detail today. Since he's done all the heavy lifting of pulling out all the comments, I'm going to do the heavy lifting of reading out the comments. Should I start? Much appreciated. <laughs> So this one is from Rohit Datta Mazumdar and uh, his comment is safety perspective at age 30. I had my first scooter, a Bajaj Super, on which he had an accident when he was 18. He skated on sand because he braked hard and hit his head on a pole. Poles are just bad news, man. He was saved by his helmet, which he had put on that morning to stay warm because it was cold. It changed his perspective on safety early on, as he admits, and he was saved again other times by gear. But he says that at the same time that it's really not convenient to wear gear all the time for commutes. Um, he thinks the shoes and, and helmet is okay. And the attitude of not being stupid is what he relies on nowadays. Mm. He's bought a car, which is a five-star rated car, the Punch from Tata for long distance commutes. He's still in the process of discovering the last 20 to 30 BHP of it. Uh, the interesting bit is he says safety is unfair. It's like a game where we have to give up best for 365 days a year for something that may or may not happen. Uh, but it takes one second for the opponent to defeat us. But then who said life is fair? Well, first of all, I disagree uh, on the gear part, obviously. <laughs> I think you can wear gear every day. And if you can't, maybe you should just remain in the car, which is, I mean, think about it. Wearing the seatbelt is simpler than wearing gear every day. There's no two ways about it. But by the same logic that you've used, and which is a brilliant piece of logic, which is, it's a game. And you basically raise the stakes as high as you can on a daily basis. And it takes a second for life to defeat all the work that you've done. And it's how it is. But I find something about that so disturbing that safety is a game. Like, it's just like... Yeah. It, it feels like, no, it, that's wrong, but it's not. It's not. It's real. Uh, I had a cop stop me once and he accused me of racing because I was wearing mm. riding gear. And mm. I said, no, I'm not oh, racing. Yeah. I'm just afraid to fall. Yeah. And he's like, <laughs> it doesn't look like you're afraid to fall. It looks like you're going racing. I said, no, you don't understand. I would not have to wear this gear if I could tell you when I would fall. Right. And then I would wear my gear only on that day. Huh. I mean, ideally at that minute and not a minute before that. But I can't. And until I can't, I will wear my gear everywhere. And mm. I'm not saying this from the perspective of... Uh, dismissing Rahul's perspective on safety gear. Hmm. It's true. It is inconvenient. Yeah. But the fact is we get one body and that has to do a lot of work to get us from our birth to our death. Right. That's its job. And even with safety gear, it's not like you're guaranteed that you're going to be safe all the time, right? That's, that's the odds. So as much as you can prepare for it by saying, I will rely on my anticipation skills and I understand that that's a very powerful thing to do. Hmm. I don't think that that makes gear optional. 
at all and to me if that is the point where you refreshing no i cannot do this on a daily basis honestly stick to the car and take your bike out on the weekend when you are willing to wear the riding gear yeah but even when it comes to the car my advice is that just because of five star rated car doesn't mean you can slack off right they are responsibility to <laughs> drive the best yeah. you can be as attentive as you need to be is a a given it's a yeah. given yeah all right moving on to the next one Okay. So this is episode 2 and we are more or less going in sequence of the episodes that we did. Okay. So episode 2 was about safety which is all these particular comments are about safety. You know the name of the next guy, right? No, I don't. You will have to read it. Yeah. Out. Nope, no way. I don't know his name. <laughs> Cuz the comment is from Nope, no way. He loves the name, the handle, and the comment is wonderful podcast. Love the perspective on risk and he's a risk management guy. Very corporate and white collar he says. and he remembers being 18 on his pulsar 220 and thinking he was immortal yeah, we've all been there <laughs> and crashed at 135 kilometers an hour wow that's that's yeah, that's, that's uh, the incident didn't scare him although the ghost of his mistake does visit his wrist every winter <laughs> that's nice and he bought a bullet 2 years later and kept riding that it was um, he started actually ma- when he started actually making good money and contributing to his family that he started to think of safety more carefully uh, <laughs> and he says this went on for about 6 years but he says now he lives in a state of fear and is not accepting risk as is he's 31 has a wife a 3 month old baby and he's just got an rtvs apache rr310 hmm. so he thought that he had to do something and was looking at risk mis- mitigation as a concept and fact of life so he's bought a serious riding jacket gloves boots top spec helmet and riding pants mm. he says i may not be as light or as nimble but i know a lot more and riding a bullet for 11 years has made me a very patient rider mm. it's if it's my family that's uh, traveling we'll be in the car with seat belts child seats and airbags but me i just want to fly once in a while and come home in one piece to play with my son oh man <laughs> this is tell this, me dad how this, does that <laughs> message make you feel yeah yeah i wish i was as mature as that yeah? <laughs> to be honest uh, no but i think that's uh, very well said i mean i think we've all been there even uh, the earlier message looking at uh, nope no ways comment and rohit's comment this i mean you can relate to them you've been there you've done these stupid things and grateful that you just made it yeah. and yeah over time you've learned i mean there was a time when there was no riding gear you used to ride without i mean a helmet was like ah oh, i'm being responsible <laughs> <laughs> right and people used to actually ask why are you wearing a helmet i remember at one point people used well, luckily to- i'm from delhi so i always had a helmet because it was always the law and it was always enforced in delhi we never had a time without a helmet i don't know whether we discussed this earlier or not but i was in symbiosis in pune mm. and uh, symbiosis college once made a rule mm. saying you cannot park so they they, they had a two wheeler parking area on the uh, college premises mm. and at one year they changed the rule saying that if you want to park in the college premises which is a paid thing right mm. you go in we used to pay i think 2 rupees to park the two wheeler mm. you couldn't do it unless you had a helmet yeah and it rule. caused a revolt <laughs> there were like morchas and stuff saying that how can this be but it's true no if you look at humanity as a bell curve right <laughs> most of them are on the dumb side at least 50% are definitely on the dumb side so yeah i, I imagine that there would be a revolt yes. <laughs> and they had to they had to change the rule the rule was changed 
it went on like that. in fact in all of pune i think it goes to prove that human civilizations progress is not a curve that moves straight up it's a thing that we take three steps forward then take two back and then three forward and two back which is why we just slower than Sometimes we could have been ginormous ones backwards yeah yeah uh, so anyways so the baby angle of course I, when i had uh, mm. we had a son i thought you know now i'm going to sober up it did not happen <laughs> it just did not happen i said do you want to live scared no i don't live scared so i'm just going to write but yeah like you said i think fear is something that's a constant a lot of people think i be, think it's important yeah it's critical because it keeps you real right it's yeah. telling you to gauge things very carefully yeah so i may i mean maybe it's just because we are calculating things a lot more closely normally no i i think a total lack of fear would be fatal it's part of how humans stay alive and how we do stuff right we learn to fear things like for example when you're a child and you see a pot on on a, on a stove boiling water you reach out to touch it but you only make that mistake once because after that between pain and fear you learn that mm. that is a terrible idea mm. and once your dexterity comes when you grow up then you realize that there are other implements you can use to interact with that mm. but you don't need to use your hands to do it anymore it's how it works right everybody would be valentino rossi if there was no fear mm. a few of them would survive long enough to win no. a championship there's skill a lot of skill not just lack of fear it's Nah. the skill has come from where valentino rossi has spent from the age of 4 figuring out how to work mm. with the fear and the pain mm. to learn the skills needed to be a world mm. champion mm. if i remove the fear mm. if i remove the fear of pain mm. everybody would be able to do it right what's stopping you then you'd start at any point and say what i need to crash 300 times to figure out how this thing works you take a lot more to get there yeah. i'm saying huh. it will be much simpler uh-huh. what's stopping you today yeah. primarily is yeah. fear and fear. pain yeah right Correct. i'm taking one big fear away huh. you'd get a very very high rate of skilled mm. motorcyclists mm. but there'd be a lot of guys who would not make it mm. because the fear and the pain that keeps you alive mm. has been taken out of that picture i think it's a completely normal thing to have fear and yeah and i think uh, like fear is good i think it's what keeps you safe on the road it's yeah. that is that half a second of i only caution. think that fear should not stop you in your tracks it should make you think about how to do this in a better way correct it should not become a par- paralyzing factor which happens it's also completely normal it happens to a lot of us in a, in specific situations uh, related to specific context but it should force you to think about what's the right way to do it what's the better way to do it and not paralyze you that's all i i'm i think yeah exactly so which is what i was going back to his line he said i, I lived in a weird state of fear and that was like Okay that does sound a bit strange mm-hmm. and i guess you can get paranoid but um, that's life you got to move on you yeah. you shouldn't be limiting yourself no uh, you it should, should guide you it shouldn't limit you yeah you should continue to live in a way that you would be happy that is important no none of these changes in your life uh, in your family should change in that sense who you are it will change how you do what you do mm. but it shouldn't change who you are because then at some point it will hurt and that shouldn't happen right uh next one sure okay we're switching episodes i think episode 3 this is from sachin unni mm. and he says what i think is that the us uk and eu markets are downsizing from liter bikes to 600 700 even 300 400 cc range mm. and india is ready for upgrading from 100 200 cc's Two, four hundred, five hundred, six hundred CC bikes, hmm. which puts us in a very sweet spot. If all these manufacturers could build here, sell here, and also export from here. Yeah, right. 
I think it's already happening. Right? Yeah, it's already happening. <laughs> but there's more coming our way, and which is fantastic. Not just that. I think uh, Sachin doesn't touch upon the fact that the European and the American riders are getting older very quickly. Mm. And India, Southeast Asia, huh. Africa is full of youth. Latin America is full mm. of youth. Mm. The motorcycle market natively is a poor man's market, as it were. Mm. If you are very well off, you would probably not be seen on a motorcycle in any of these countries. Mm. so it's a poor man's market that favors the youth hmm which is where we live hmm so the market has to come to us now so europe had a time and all the great motorcycles on earth that we look back to in the 60s the 70s the 80s 90s all of that is european and america's history they created it and that was the context of those we create i think the next two decades of whatever passes for motorcycling next so i think there's also uh, you spoke about you spoke about uh, europe and developed markets where the motorcycles actually have created this situation hmm. right because they became so powerful and so intimidating that the next generation kind of started to veer away and it I became a very risk i think they are moving away but i don't think they're moving away because the motorcycles have become too much yeah but that's what happened right because no i think they're moving on to other things it's the digital generation they have no interest in no, the so real world no so this is the pre digital generation also the digital generation is a different phenomenon altogether That's but just, the power uh, it's just and prices kartik not really the power it's just the top of the motorcycle market because you're forgetting insurance no no that's why yeah. it is a price sensitive place yeah. it's an expensive place to be in mm. and you can afford to do it if you're 55 and 60 because mm. the insurance Correct. permits you saying you're old enough to know better and exactly. to push your luck yeah a youngster can't do it exactly but a youngster natively and there studies from germany there studies from japan who said the youngster isn't natively interested in private transport anyway right he wants to sit on a train sit on a bus and be on his phone and be online with his friends right i mean in effect tiktok is killing motorcycling and cars together i think that's come now because even earlier studies from europe showed that if it costs 1000 euros to get a license right just a learner's license people say it's not worth it it's too much money that's the yeah. starting point just to get a license is 1000 euros yeah i mean to apply for one whether you get the license or not is the next whether you clear it or not yeah and that abstraction i think is possible in a place where transportation itself is not a challenge hmm yeah yeah like in india if i tell you that you can't have a license you're more or less yeah in a difficult place because what are you going to do next hmm. what's your backup mode of hmm. transportation hmm. which india is not really it's working on it right now which is why all our cities are under construction because we want a metro and a bus system but does it exist natively as a functioning effective backup for all levels of society today hmm. it doesn't and therefore driving and personal mobility is super critical to what happens next in this country yeah so a 1000 euro license is optional for a european because he has backup if it was a 10000 rupee license in india it would still not be optional for most of us we'd have to do it would just be a very expensive thing to do yeah okay um so continuing with that so he says that once we we are in that sweet spot and someone has to make that start once volumes build up rest will follow mm. i'd like to see more of the bikes like versus tigers and tenares here at mm. more competitive prices instead is going the other way yeah. it's just a matter of time sachin mm. we just have to have the patience because they don't have a choice <laughs> this is where the market will remain it's coming to us it's been coming to us for a while it's a slow process the motorcycles are fast but the markets are slow but eventually i don't see a choice if yamaha is going to sell a large number of tenaries on earth 
India will have to be a critical part of that story. Look at all the big expensive German cars. We are their fastest growing market in some of the most important future markets already. Think about motorcycles as something that happens five years after the cars. Hmm. Actually, uh, coming back, in fact, the Honda twin cylinders, the entire platform, the seven hundred, the five hundred. In fact, that was a project that was created. I mean, that started off from the idea that new riders are not coming in to the market. And it was an emerging markets platform. It is selling in Europe, mm. of course, but it is an emerging markets platform by the definition in the press release that Honda sent out at the very beginning of that mm. adventure. And they will have multiple formats on these platforms. They've already done this, and we will continue to get a lot more motorcycles which will fall in this mid displacement. So yeah, the I mean the future is definitely very good when it comes to this. Yeah, and I know there is there's a lot of concern about people saying, oh, I'm already thirty years old, and they'll it'll be EVs by the time I. No, it won't. The the eighteen year olds are worried mm. that they they will not get the sound of the ICE when they grow up because it'll be all EVs. Eighteen year olds don't need to worry about it. I don't think you need to worry because the transition isn't going to be that fast. It's not yeah. possible. The numbers are so large in a country like India that it is just not possible to completely replace ICEs with EVs on the time scale that you're talking about. It's not going to be possible. Yeah, replacing all of them is not possible. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Varun VP has said, "Admin, please collect the list of comments mentioning Yamaha R3 and drop a mail to Yamaha. Let them understand what they are missing out on." Now, this is from the episode, of course, which is what we don't get. Yes. So we were listing out, and Yamaha dominates the <laughs> comment stream. It also, I think, we seeded it a little bit because we did discuss Yamaha in detail. Yeah. It's an old frustration point for all of us in this country. and i think the comment stream only reiterated that so uh, he's absolutely right if yamaha were to go through the comment stream and i suspect that they have uh, they would discover that they get discussed a lot and it appears that none of the indian enthusiasts think yamaha is selling them the products that they want <laughs> they're busy selling random products to random customers but the core group of people who want yamahas they have no yamahas left to buy nonsense yeah people want yamaha scooters that are fuel efficient Rubbish you talk. That's what Yamaha's for, right. don't you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sarcasm from you is a uh, is unexpected and it clearly because we touched we were, a nerve, right? Because we were we were talking about the FZ, remember? And then the irony is that you know we love the FZ, right? The FZ is such a fantastic motorcycle, great great chassis, suspension, just so admirable. and then they made that blue core when they went to blue core and they made it efficient basically the focus became fuel efficiency and uh, uh, basically becoming wallet friendly and it became it lost all its charm as a fun motorcycle it became a 150 cc commuter and the sales went up there for yeah. the fc so yeah that's what people want from yamaha yamaha did a good job yeah yeah yamaha keep at it continue to do the stuff that you're doing we're so excited for you so f4 was the race track mm. and here adwait m has a message great episode as always i still have a few more doubts as a beginner on a bike regarding the topic which i honestly don't know where else to ask mm. mostly about the part where you said we can take our own bikes no matter what it is to a track school yes so can we take it in stock condition itself or yes. do we have to get any mods done for safety and other track needs no so in india the idea is we are still at a stage where we're trying to unlock the race track for people so we're trying to lower the barriers as much as possible so when you hit your first 
track day or school, ideally a school, most of us will not ask you to change your bike in any major way. You'll take your mirrors off. And mostly because you habitually check your rearview mirror and it's a distraction at a racetrack that you don't need. At our school, we'll make you tape up your speedometer so you can't see the speed because the sense of the speed needs to come from your mental setup and mm -hmm. what you're seeing rather than a number on the dash. It's a distraction. Mm -hmm. And outside of that, we honestly don't make you change anything. We will check that your brake pads are fresh enough so that they'll last the two or three days that you'll be on the track. What about tires? He's asking about tires. Yeah. Tires need to be re relatively recent. Okay, if you're going to use tires that are at the end of their lives at the racetrack, your ability to use the grip and experience the power, the performance of the motorcycle, experience the growth of your skill will be hampered by your own tires. Hmm. So if you're going to be replacing tires post the track day, you might as well just do it before the track day. Hmm. So ideally, you should be on relatively recent tires, running stock pressures on a completely stock motorcycle, any motorcycle at all, it doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, he's asking what about sliders to prevent damages or, you know. Stop worrying, bro. It's not worth it. <laughs> All right. Next one. Also from the same episode, Akshat Bhatnagar. How do I experience a track from Pune? Grow up and accept that you will have to travel for certain things. Like, for example, you live in Pune and you want to see the Taj Mahal because you're a travel enthusiast. You're going to have to go to the Taj Mahal, right? The racetrack works exactly the same way, but the experience is even better than just seeing the Taj Mahal because you see it and it's done at the racetrack, you get to participate and engage. For which, as of today, you're going to have to go at least, what, uh, 1200 kilometers to Chennai or 1200 to Coimbatore or a much longer distance, I think 1700 kilometers to Delhi. It's how it is. Now you have two choices about this. You can sit and wait for a racetrack to come to you. Might happen in the next five years, might not happen for the next 20 years, nobody knows. Or you could accept that you are growing older every day. So it's just easier for you to put it together and say, okay, in September this year, I will have the money, the time, I will apply for leave, whatever it is, and ensure that I go to a track day this September. And I, sorry, but I speak from a point of experience because when I did my first track day 16 years ago, I had the exact same feeling saying, oh my God, it's so far away. But for those intervening 16 years, I have done this eight times a year, spending money, spending time, making sure that I go to the racetrack. The day I decide it's too much work, it will be too much work. All right. What you may have also meant to ask is that you go online, you look for track schools, see which days are convenient for you. You reach out to them, ask for a slot, they'll ask you to pay some money, you book your slot, and then you take your motorcycle, You've, you have transporters who will load it for you, and uh, from your house or from wherever, some some point in your city, you load it and then it's offloaded at the racetrack. If there are other people traveling with you for that event, then it's easier. You can share one transporter with other motorcycles. And uh, yeah, you'll be at a track day. That's, it's pretty easy. You don't need a license to be at a track day. I mean, like an FMSCI license no, or no, anything no. like that. No, 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 a street license. You enough. don't need, we already spoke about the motorcycle. You don't need to do the anything The reason about why I didn't go there is because it's in the episode. All of that is in the episode. He picked that question. So clearly he wanted to say that, just get off your ass and get there. Okay? Yeah, man. <laughs> okay, this is from episode five, which is about price hikes. And this is about Sanman Bodke. Wonderful episode and one of my favorite topics of all time, economy and inflation. While we all know that prices are never going to come down because that isn't how the economics of things work, I think an important observation to make would be understanding the value received in return. 
A simple example of that would be to look at the memory storage industry. Year over year, the prices of hard disks or SSDs have remained constant, but what has massively changed is the storage capacity we get at the price point. 10 years back, for $50, you'd get 50 GB, but now for $60, you get 500 GB. Hmm. Similarly for CPUs, GPUs. So yes, the price went up $10, but the value received in in return has gone up exponentially. Hmm. Translating this to the automotive world, while the prices of cars are going up, the value we receive in return has been improving drastically as well. Safer cars, better technology, cleaner engines, nicer designs, all of these are valuable things. If Honda was to launch a variant of the city at 2008 price with tech and safety standards from 2008, no one would probably buy it because you you value your own safety and modern creature comforts more than the price hike mm. that the 2022 model has. You folks touched upon this aspect of things, but I think it does merit a discussion on what our expectations are as buyers of automobiles. Looking forward to see more of such inf- insightful conversations. What do you think? He's absolutely right. Mm. I have no hesitation in this. And in fact, we didn't discuss it all that much, but we've done this analysis and we've discussed this. In fact, cars are, modern day cars are delivering outstanding value compared, if we just take inflation, we did this example with the Scorpio from when it was launched to what it is now. Mm. The base Scorpio today, in today's money, would be about 20 lakh rupees. Correct. Whereas the base Scorpio today is some 13, 14, 14 lakhs, right? Hmm. Much bigger car. What would be Much the, more sophisticated. What would be the value of this Scorpio in today's money by the time you actually get delivery of this car? <laughs> you know what? It's an investment. <laughs> because if you buy it today, <laughs> all the price hikes that are going on, by the time you get it, you'll be like, ah, I saved so much You money. didn't. <laughs> because the price is applicable on the day they deliver the car to you. You're not protected from that price hike at you all. Gotta ha- you got to haggle, man. You can't. The, the the document that you sign says the price is valid on the day that you pay. Mm. And they will not take your money until the two years, until your number comes up. Whatever the price of the Scorpio you booked on that day is the price you get to pay. It's rigged against you. But what Salman saying is spot on. Vehicles are better today. Prices have gone up, but they're delivering more. Maybe intangibles. Like you don't need safety every day. You need safety when you have a crash. You know, like the riding gear thing that we were talking about at the beginning. But it's how it is. And overall, uh, even in terms of engineering, core engineering, we've moved up so much. Thank God, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and to think that we are at this level and we are getting great value still despite everything. I mean, everything added up, you're still getting a lot more, mm. right? Compared to where we were 20 years ago, yeah, right? For sure. Which is which is a win, for sure. And next one from the same episode is Tarun Chaudhary. Great discussion and we're getting used to this with each podcast. One point that bothers me in pricing of cars today is the very fact that the features on offer in different variants are not as pricey individually as they sum up to become in the car's overall pricing. For example, a base model of the Hyundai Creta is at 12 lakhs on-road in Delhi. However, the top model is about 21 lakhs and some change. No matter what the changes are made to the engine, the automatic climate control, the touchscreen, etc., it is difficult to digest that the 9-10 lakh worth of features are added to the vehicle. Does it make sense to buy a base or a little higher variant and then add features such as infotainment system, better alloys and tires, etc.? I happened to invest in a car detailing workshop for two years and for a reason exited the work. But what I noticed was strange ways of people trying to deal with the price of cars during showroom purchase. Many of them lifted base models and invested just 50% of the overall price difference between their car and the top variant to bring it to that level. Have you heard of marketplaces such as Karol Bagh at Delhi? Who hasn't? 
is always a question when you're looking at a new car mm. we always look at the car as okay uh, how's it to drive how's it comfortable i mean how comfortable is it mm. but the value that a vehicle delivers varies from variant to variant and, and he's pointed from that from person to person too yeah no yes. i'm i'm saying just monetarily uh, so in terms of the features that get stacked on and uh, the premium that a manufacturer demands so there are certain variants which are really good vfm Mm. because the kind of uh, features that they've added on relative to the previous variant and the price hike mm. demanded for it mm. is very good whereas for some variants the price hike is far more mm. in relation to the features that have actually been added on why does it sound to me like the manufacturers are complicating their own lives by creating too many variants and having this question appear at all because if you look at the apple world nobody asks this question mm-hmm. we just consider that all upgrades are too expensive mm. but we accept that there are only three upgrades and then you're mm-hmm. done with this entire line of phones so the idea is android yeah, world uh, for example uh, is the opposite of this where making decisions is so much more challenging uh, because there are so many alternatives going on uh, right so is is this just a problem of the manufacturers just having too many variants on offer to make somebody think this hard to buy mm. a vehicle So okay you've raised a good point uh and which Tarun is also alluding to over here so there are certain variants which is obviously the base variants which are basically what we call as the hook variants mm. so basically this gives you a really attractive starting price right and that embeds the vehicle as an idea in the consumer's minds mm. ki are wo to 10 lakh rupees se chalu hoti hai mm. right so it gets stuck in your head that hey it's within reach right, right? and invariably when you go to buy one you'll find one which is much more expensive sure. right and that'll be the one with all the features and all but the point is they've got you to the showroom they've got you hooked mm. right the chances are if you've got to the showroom means you are quite keen on a particular vehicle right mm. the second part about this is the taxation also varies so vehicles that are costing under 10 lakh rupees the mm. tax applied on them is different compared to vehicles that cost above sure. right so that also causes a certain jump mm. in the prices and which is why manufacturers always trying to hit a particular price tag mm. um so that they can you know adjust the uh, they can control the impact on the products uh, value mm. um and about the features i think yes he's right there are certain variants uh, which are So how do you identify what to focus on? Yeah, so that's one thing that he's asked. So that really varies. Like um I can be very functional, mm. right? So if you ask me do I need LED headlamps? Um no, I don't. I'm okay. Mm. I'm fine so with base plus one. Yeah, if so if you're super functional oriented. Yeah, do I need alloy wheels? Uh, not really. I'm I'm okay. Okay, so basically base plus one is a good uh variant to look at if mm. you're very function oriented mm. base plus 17 is a great place for if you're value oriented base plus 35 is a great place for your value but you want to be perceived as premium and base plus 67 is what you should have if you have an unlimited budget and 67 is not a random number it's an actual number of variants for a very popular car and i think it's stupid so how do you choose between the motorcycle variants should be 
Fortunately, motorcycles barely have three or four variants. You know, you pick one and you're ABS done. standard हो गया ABS standard ABS standard ABS standard We set everything has single channel ABS, just don't buy one. Oh, yeah. Which means you eliminate two <laughs> pulsar P150s and two pulsar N160s before you get to the top N160, which is the first thing you get dual channel ABS. With. It's very simple in motorcycles. Just the fact that there is a loophole in the ABS law eliminates a whole bunch of them. So uh, coming, coming back to uh, Tarun's last part of his question. Do you recommend buying a base variant? Actually, the things that I end up looking for are some of the simple conveniences, seat height adjust, rear windscreen, wash pipe. These are things that are small conveniences that make a big difference when you own the vehicle. Um, what you would want is um, some kind of infotainment in place. I'm not somebody who's likely to go and fit a complete system from outside, though. I'm okay with fitting systems and all, okay? Uh-huh. When people start cutting my roof and putting sunroofs uh-huh. in, then I am in trouble, okay? I don't want structural modifications to my car to raise the model level to something else, okay? You do whatever you want with the electronics, be careful, don't void your warranty, change your seats, that's all fine. Okay. When they start cutting body panels up, when they start changing functional things, mm. wheel sizes, brake sizes, those kind of things, I would not touch a car which had those kind of mods done. So if somebody took my whatever and turned it into an SXO, if it has a sunroof that they added back in Karolbag, that's the end of that. I don't care how conscientious the garage is. That's not what it was engineered to do. I am not going to drive that car. And uh, context, when uh, manufacturers do uh, incorporate a sunroof in a car, they will typically also add bracing inside. So there is more rigidity built into that area because effectively you have created a hole which is going to affect the integrity of the structure. Yeah. So episode 6, ADVs. Yogesh Kumar, uh, doing a well-educated podcast, uh, especially two-wheelers, really appreciate it. Uh, small request. People of mine who admire old bikes, two-stroke bikes, which ruled Indian roads and tracks. We do have in our garage. Uh, commute with them. We would like to hear your discussion about old collection of bikes, scooters, which were middle-class family love for these and how to have it passed on and educating for the future generations hmm. and about how motorcycles meant to be used with purpose and practicality rather than aesthetics. Yeah. Youth restoring and restoring old bikes. So basically it's about old bikes, uh, people using two strokes and what would you recommend to people who were looking to restore vehicles? I have no interest in this at all. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm from a generation where two strokes were the normal for us. Yeah. We moved on. And today I find two strokes to be too much work because my first interest is not in keeping them, is riding them. And they're too much work to ride. So honestly, would I dip into the old motorcycle pool? I don't think I'll ever mentally be old enough to be able to access that kind of nostalgia to have the kind of power where I say this Sunday I will restore a bike. Mm. I don't think that's ever going to happen because if on that Sunday I could be riding a bike, Mm. I'd just be riding a bike instead. So honestly, I've never had a fascination for older vehicles. Mm. I still don't. I'd love to look at their pictures, but Mm. at that point I'm done. Mm. So a picture of an RD350, I think is very sweet. Mm. Would I buy an RD350 today? Not really. What about you? It's a very different mindset and it requires a lot of patience. It's mm. a lot of hard work. It's very charming. Yeah. It's great to see one go by. I, and I really admire the people who have that mindset and are able to put in the work. But would I do it? Would you yeah. do it? Like I, I just rode a 135, RX135. Abhinav has it. Mm. And uh, just looking at it and it's looking mint. And you just look at it like, wow. 
Yeah. You start it up and you're like, oh my god, this is amazing. You write it and this is like mind blowing. Yeah. But do you have the time, the patience, and the energy to do this? Oh my god, yeah. it takes a lot. Yeah. So yeah, anybody wanting to do this needs to have those three first and foremost, and next would be and money because it yeah. does take so a fair me, amount of money. So to me, when, as when as you're well. trying to teach the youth about the older world that we lived in, you have to remember you have to impart the idea that it was okay to work for the performance. Whereas today the performance is just available, and I don't think today's youth is being conditioned to think about performance as anything other than instant gratification. They just want a more powerful thing that works right now. Mm-hmm. It's a really, really difficult hill to climb, and so a very small number of people are going to climb it. If it's your cup of tea, please go for it. But uh, honestly, in this one regard, I probably identify more with the current generation, where I want my bikes to run, and I want them to run every day, and I want to ride them every day. I don't want to have to spend any time fixing them at all. Next one, Shrikant S. He's spoken about us and hmm. um, and he's talked about the Himalayan, how comfortably found it. The also slow, three fifty, yeah, yeah, heavy and yeah, all of that. But the point he comes down to finally is he's spoken about the expels, how it's great on trails, um, power is inadequate. Uh, so the question he has is ideal adventure tourer for our roads a reliable long stroke single cylinder 450 to 500 cc with 40 to 45 bhp on tap sorted electricals 14 15 la- uh, liter tank with a suspension setup of the himalayan weighing 170 to 180 kgs would be perfect enough said that's how he ends just make one bro I think he didn't ask us the question. He told us what yeah, it should just, be. Yeah, I, 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 the specificity <laughs> of the specification is scary to me because... Who you working for, man? It's a very scary way to look at motorcycling because to me, the motorcycle is not about the spec. It's about what mm-hmm. it does. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. The V-Strom has a 12-liter tank. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take an example of the V-Strom. Mm-hmm. We said the minimum range it has is... 300. Mm. And minimum means you're pushing that bike and you're getting barely 25 kilometers per liter. What it actually does is 10 kmpl more in most people's hands. Mm. So what I was expecting and happened was that the owners wrote back and they said, no, it gives you 420 to 450 kilometers on the tank. Wow. People who can do that a 300. nuts. Yeah, no, but people who can do 300 kilometers at a stretch anyway is 1% of the touring crowd. It's very difficult to do and many of you are just not going to be able to have the patience to sit in one place for three and a half hours at a time. It's not possible. Which means that your 15, 17 liter tank only solves one problem, which is the 365 kilometers from Tandi to Leh. And you cannot tell me that there will not be a petrol pump there in the next three or four years because it's literally what the BRO is up to every year, making that region of the country more and more accessible. Why do you need a 17 liter tank at all? So I'm scared of the specificity of the specification that you ask for, but I understand the intention. We do need a more realistic, reasonably powerful, reasonably priced ADV, which I think we will get this year. I have no doubt about it. Mm. He says, I would like to keep my hopes low so that I'm surprised by the manufacturer. I'm going to say, I think this time they're going to nail it, but we are going to get that bike this year. Mm -hmm. Will it be that spec? No, but will it do that job? I think it will. It's going to be pretty close, I think. Okay, next one. I, no, I'm, I'm not doubting the spec. Huh. I'm saying I'm worried when it becomes this specified. Right. I want that role to be satisfied. I don't mm. care how they do it. Okay, I'll, 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 I'll kind of spell out what he's trying to say. Very often people are saying that, you know, hey, this car doesn't have all-wheel disc brakes. Why? Do you know why you need all-wheel disc brakes? Does the car need all-wheel disc brakes? Do you know what the stopping performance is? 
don't specify for the sake of specifying uh, something we we've seen this in the past like there were drum drum brakes on motorcycles which were fantastic i remember like you were like this is great you don't really need uh, a disc brake on a vehicle of this size and they would be like no it doesn't have a disc brake as an option it was a great drum brake no and a, a lot of the drum brakes today which are sitting at the back of many of the commuter motorcycles work just fine mm. the reason why a disc brake is an improvement is because in more conditions more often disc brakes are more predictable than drum brakes mm. that doesn't make drum brakes terrible automatically yeah. it makes disc brakes the next step of progress so i want a bike that stops well how they stop it is honestly yeah okay next one is episode 7 brands versus products and this is yash jivrajani this is a long this comment this is a, it's a good comment actually you should take your time just go through it and just give us a summary okay i'm just going to do that rationally recognize the rational part of your purchase such a shumi thing but it holds so true and very very well ended on uh, on this if you want to understand the indian market this is it we don't care for crazy numbers or spec sheets i mean we do care for that that's why we are good in math and ceos of most of the world giants but how quick can you sell us the car is what drives a purchasing decision we are that market shameless and irrational whether you like it or not another point i would highlight is we don't have just one type of people we essentially can be classified as three different classes the rural semi urban tier 3 and below uh people whose education for the number game is almost negligible so even if honda tvs makes the exact same splendor and call it blender or dender terrible names but you get the point that the buyers will still go for splendor because household hero is associated with it and to topple the splendor we need to do what tata is doing with their hatchbacks the after sales is shit but it found out a key differentiator that it created norms and practically is now standard even recognized by the government so tvs honda and others find something which splendor doesn't and make your marketing team rub their asses for 24/7 these are i was in 90% of the population but have very less significance for gdp and growth hence mass produced spikes are the rage to tap into them tier 2 are educated but lack of purchasing power to go for higher displacements so they are the guinea pigs they will try jigsaws ronins and god forbid the highness but these are less in numbers or so appeal to those is a double edged sword my god what the hell is this but at the same time these people if they like your product they will influence the tier 3 people and that there is a new comer and i have tested it and we can check the next gen of it these are i would say the remaining 9 and a half 9.8% because here the consumers graduated from tier 3 so it's new and exciting very much and about 50% contribution gdp so good market but undecided one and key is undecided so whether whatever you throw if other oem gives just one more feature for the same price your product is cut throat in dustbin and then we have the uber rich people who we always aspire to become super niche ultra concentrated hard driven people for whom why should i write a para it's self explanatory right okay summarize what was the question <laughs> this this is like uh yes or in japanese press conference yes <laughs> that's the that's the uh, or rather good question so yash jivrajani has a really long comment you should go and see it and basically he's saying if you divide the country into three parts hmm. the urban uh, is the top in the middle are tier 3 and semi urban at the bottom is the rural and what he's saying is that india works in three completely different ways where at the bottom and in the rural what is established is the most important hmm in the middle are people who are relatively undecided and you can influence them 
and therefore they're more willing to try products from different manufacturers and play around with it and if you can pique their interest then even if the first one doesn't work maybe the second one the iteration and the improvement is enough to swing things and at the top are people who are very very conscious about it needs to look right it needs to feel right and even a small change of features can be a make or break decision for it above which of course is the uber rich which will do whatever they want do you agree with that i'm actually not uh, convinced that it's a geographical breakup actually i think the more you're secure about your income the more you're willing to play with it and so the more you'll be willing to try stuff that is not the established and i don't think that that changes whether you're in the urban you're in tier 3 or semi urban or rural if your money is secure you're willing to play with it but if your money is insecure then you'd want to go and get whatever is you think the safest purchase and that determines everything which is why farmers in punjab are known to buy mercedes benzes regularly because they earn well and the uh, income is secure but you cannot say that you know a farmer in rayal seema which is bad weather and every year they have a drought they are not going to be that frivolous or luxurious oriented with their purchases it will accrue to the market leader and whatever happens to be the safest thing so they are more likely to have a fortuner if they are a good farmer in rayal seema but the punjab guy will already have a fortuner so he'll be quite happy to buy himself a mercedes benz and i think a good uh, explainer i mean a good example for this would be the activa which you've cited now activa is a phenomena whether you're in the rural markets or in the urban markets right it's a trusted name people are attached to it and that's it you buy it because it's it works right yeah. it's as simple as that it's a solution that you're looking for it's when you move up in terms of now you're looking for a better experience you're buying your second vehicle or your third vehicle that's when you're going to start looking broader wider you know even even there there are market leaders and established players mm-hmm. yeah. even there the advantage will go to them until the income pattern changes and if you think about it the way we are positioned as a country on the globe right now as we become a richer country and more money is in the hands of more people that's when the pattern actually changes where the market leaders automatic dominance will not be so automatic anymore right and that's what we're heading for i think next we just don't know when will it be next 5 years from now will it be 10 years from now we don't know and uh, sorry but you know that thought process even carries over to the luxury segment anybody wanting to buy a luxury car who doesn't think about a mercedes first correct right it's is something like that somebody is who's owns the space as an idea and everybody else is trying to topple that brand or uh, name it's normal like think about it sports car ferrari that's the first yeah. thing anybody's going to say you want one you have others but yeah. you'll want one no somebody pointed this out uh, to me uh, yesterday and it applies he said until ktm raised the prices of the duke 200 to a point which is now a little bit on the expensive side mm. the mt15 didn't sell Mm. but today the MT15 is at the exact same place as the Duke 200 used yeah. to be offers a similar proposition mm-hmm. yeah and now you see them everywhere right correct right it's the market leader's position to give up mm. and somebody else took advantage of it correct right but market leaders will dominate until we are secure enough to say no it's just a car mm. i buy one every 3 years so let me try something new this time or they throw it away in some weird manner which could happen Anyways, Saurav Chaudhary, uh, knowledgeable. I think knowledgeable people are selecting better products than brand or value. This is the main reason why we see Creta, Nexon, Innova, XUV, Scorpio selling in such large numbers, even though they are priced at a premium. But I still feel many buyers who are just considering automobiles as a mode of transport, their first checklist is value for money, as they are fixed on a budget and want to squeeze out the maximum features and performance in that budget. 
people might value discounts, uh, allow them to purchase from a higher segment, enhance social status. Shumi's words, value for money ends the moment we leave the showroom floor was the main reason. I listened to my heart and went and bought the CBR 650R, a product many people consider as the worst value for money. Four months down the line, every time I ride the bike, I tell myself, thank God I listened to that podcast. <laughs> so, okay, sort of on Shumi's behalf, thank you. Yeah, I don't think we have anything to address there. So I'm moving. No, I think it's, <laughs> it's spot on, except that I still go back to my same idea of the idea of value changes very slightly for a for, from person to person, but it's the core of how we buy things today. Mm. And to us, the security is a big part of that, which is why the Creta is the market leader. And you keep going back and thinking about mm. buying a Creta if you're in that segment. It comes from that place, but the rest of it is spot on. If you can follow a, a rational thread to a nice product like the CBR 650R that you've got, which is so cheap to live with, it's, it's one of the best deals on the market, although it's expensive at acquisition. It's a good bike. It's a peaceful motorcycle. Honda service is dirt cheap. If you crash it, parts are dirt cheap. You practically cannot go wrong with it. They also have tremendous resale values because they're just very so, few people yeah. buy it. Mm. And so, just so easy to live with. Yeah. Yeah. Ep08, pay for your dream. This is from Omkar N. Will you guys be doing community meetups and or rides? Yes. Okay. We just don't know when. <laughs> I would love to meet you both. Uh, it's refreshing to see a new take towards auto journal journalism rather than the regular product reviews. The recent Ronin vs. Hunter video was also very insightful and it touched on a lot of topics that regular reviews wouldn't include. I hope to see this channel rise and shine. Godspeed, Shumi and Karthike. Eh? Where did I select that? I think... Just so that we can confirm that we are eventually going to meet you guys, I think. Thank you. No, we are. We, we are. We, I don't think that the idea for community works unless we meet people physically. This digital giving each other hearts and all that is not how it's done, I think. <laughs> Jagmohan Jagga. It took me about an hour, maybe more, to finish watching the podcast because I was going back and forth and replaying a few parts, listening carefully. I've been working towards my dream machine and it always scares me. May it not be too late till I reach a point to get my dream bike that runs on fuel rather than a battery since EVs are the future and it is replacing fuel engines. Loved the episode. Don't worry about it. I don't think EVs are going to be replacing ICEs anytime soon. And the whole point of the dream is that it is slightly scary and it is slightly beyond your reach. Otherwise, it's achievable. I mean, it's not a dream anymore, right? And listen, finally, you enjoy the idea of being able to move faster than you physically can. And if it happens on EVs, it's okay. We'll learn, we'll enjoy it any which way. Don't worry about it. Moving on to episode 9, Spec Sheets. This is from Ajay Shankar S. And he says that um, he wants to know what's on our mind when we are test driving, test riding a motorcycle or a car. How do you really evaluate stuff? Uh, he says he understands there's an emotional component, but it would be good to see what we actually look for when we are riding a vehicle or driving a vehicle. So episode, I think 19 will help you with this, the previous episode, because we talked about milestones. Was it 18 or 19? I forget now. But basically the idea is that you're always working on your database, which Karthik and I have done for the last 23 years. And the idea is every time you ride a 100cc bike, you clarify your idea of what you think the correct 100cc bike is. And that breaks down into engine performance, refinement, fuel economy, seat, handlebar position, and so on and so forth. As granular as you want to be, the better it is for you as a tester. 
but over time you form the idea what you think is going to be a good 100 a good 125 a good 150 and so on and so forth i think the cars work the same way the number of elements for a car are more where you're looking at air conditioning effectiveness and the quality of the knob and the feel of the knob and a certain feel is okay in a small hatchback costing 10 lakh rupees but the same knob in a 50 lakh rupee car will no longer match your spec so all of this data is let's say subliminal to us because we use this data set every day but we both have reference points that we're using constantly to figure out where in the ladder of that machine's category does this new one go and fit into and that can, yeah, yeah split into okay if they were to change these three things there'd be a significant improvement here and maybe that's feedback i want to give the manufacturer or they've really missed it because it it's brand new but slots in at the bottom of the class how mm -hmm. the hell did they manage to do that to themselves mm -hmm. but it's always a core internal database that is working every single parameter mm -hmm. all the time mm -hmm. i think those are the most important yeah so if you look at the milestones episode as we call it you will get a sense of what kind of vehicles what kind of natures and feelings that we look forward to and remember i personally believe that motorcycles are quite subjective and cars are a little bit more objective than that but there's a lot of emotion involved and in that sense you shouldn't take everybody's road test with the same level of seriousness mm. right if you think that you like light compact sporty motorcycles and you're not afraid of technology maybe i am the right guy to follow but if you want stable old school tech that does a lot of work at low prices with low complexity maybe i am not the right guy to be testing the motorcycle and giving you an opinion because my mindset is completely different mm. in the same way if he likes his cars generally on the sporty side maybe if you're looking for a family car karthik is not your right reference point and which is why we keep saying the same thing you must do the test rides and drives on your own and you must make the decision use our information in the FAQ section or in the video as a guideline of what we think is going to happen versus the segment but it should know it should not play any more significant part than that you must make the decision by yourself so if you are looking to actually do the ride test drive activity for yourself and uh, the way i would think about it is you go in with a empty mind experience the vehicle let the vehicle talk to you in the sense that you give yourself the headspace to absorb what the vehicle is doing right so does it feel good on a bumpy surface does it seem quiet when you are driving smoothly does it feel natural to drive this naturalness can be vague but you feel it yeah, and right? it's a very specific feeling although it's very hard to define yeah so it's just it could be the steering it could be the throttle response so all these things you will not be able to tell right away what it is but you'll get a feeling leave space for this feeling to come through so by this you'll be able to identify what you like what you don't like and if you have more time so that's what like shumi was saying we're very fortunate that we've been able to drive and ride so many vehicles that we have quick reference points so we can come to conclusions much faster so if you're doing this as a you know when you're going out to buy a vehicle typically when you go to a showroom first time to drive a vehicle you'll be able to get a sense of what it is at whether you like it or not right something like that the second time you go back you'll be able to pinpoint Things, what it yeah. is you like about it so give yourself that time give yourself that headspace and if you do you will be able to identify what's working for you and what's not and that's basically a test drive we just have more data on data on hand okay uh, move on okay daksh sarova uh, he has a few questions uh, he's asked specifically heaviest motorcycle ridden What's yours? Oh my god. 
uh, heaviest motorcycle that would have to be the Triumph Rocket 3 really yeah. i would be it would be a cvo ultra classic electric oh. glide of some sort or a goldwing for me dude that's so strange because even though yeah i know that would be the heaviest but in my head the rocket 3 the old one not the new one was just unmanageable anyways the yeah. point daksh is that oh. both of us never stopped to think about how heavy the motorcycle we were riding was we were just out there to have a good ride on a motorcycle which happened to be large and heavy and in both cases neither the cvo really bothered us neither the rocket 3 really bothered us and i actually had a fantastic time on the goldwing uh, and the trick to goldwing this goldwing is sweet yeah is that this is like the trump cards that we used to play as children yeah but in real world motorcycling the weight would only affect you in a hilly parking lot with a slope where you did not calculate the slope when you parked the bike Hmm. it'll happen to you 2% of the time and you can learn to do better than that yeah i think see the weight aspect of it is easy to get intimidated by but you will find ways to live with it if you like the bike enough most powerful anything driven what's yours mm, veron veron the most powerful bike ridden what's yours most powerful bike it'd be the same for us actually it'll be the the akrapovich equipped panigale v4 uh, how much is the h2 i've forgotten now oh yeah you had the h2 yeah So it'll be probably the H2 for him, and it will be the Akrapovich equipped uh, Panigale V4 for me at uh, Valencia, hmm. and that bike was making 225 brake horsepower. If I'm okay, not mistaken. Okay, should, should we talk a little bit about them? Did you like the Veyron? It was it accelerated like a motorcycle, which was fun. Hmm. Uh, and it's much smaller than it looks in the pictures. It's a oh, very very compact car, and small. you'd be shocked at how small it is. Yeah. And the acceleration, despite everything, does catch you off guard. because Henri Raffanel uh-huh. was there and uh-huh. he was like watch that car and that watch that car was on the horizon and you floor it and then it's right there and you're jinking out of the way and you're like oh. so the name he just uh, said so casually he's the he was the test driver at Bugatti and he is the one who set the world record back then for the top speed yeah so it's a very very interesting car to drive in that sense but what i really was surprised by is how real it felt hmm. in the sense that if you lived in germany and you commuted on the autobahn every day and you had a veyron would you not take it out every day i think you would and i think that's insane <laughs> given how much engineering volkswagen had to do to get that bugatti to work right but uh, that aside uh, i think for me also the biggest thing about the veyron wasn't the I mean sure it's got the top speed but was it exciting to drive no okay it was, it was fast normal, yeah. it was it was fast the amazing part was how easy it was to drive yeah h2 uh, for me was it it was again like it felt like a freaking incredible awesome technology showcase what's it for though done that's it now because done. my issue with the h2 has always been the same thing what am i going to do with that bike what uh-huh. is it actually for is for uh, riding the track in one gear because you could it's just got so much torque <laughs> you so don't want to change gear uh, on the v4s i think he had the same experience where we'd come down the valencia street and there'd be somebody in front of you and their dirty air would make the bike start to weave mm. and when that's happening on a 225 bhp motorcycle which you have to return in hopefully mint shape because there are other journalists waiting it is very scary until you realize until you realize that all the other italians are like yeah but that's completely normal it weaves but it doesn't do anything else so you then sort of have to sort of mentally say it's okay that it is weaving and i am going to hit the brakes at 280 something and it will be slightly weaving at that point and it's okay the bike will handle it it takes a huge leap of faith but 
tallest seat height i don't know honestly don't think about motorcycles like that but it'll be some 900 mm thing some dirt bike somewhere i uh, for me it's the dakar bike the tvs shoko yeah and i don't know what the seat height was i just think it was here <laughs> that's it that's what it felt like yeah so it will be one of those right because yeah. we were there on the shoko thing together yeah. i was on the isd you eventually upgraded to uh-huh. the rally bike uh-huh. it would be the impulse with the uh, the expulse with the rally kit Yeah. which was the other really tall bike and whatever yamahas and suzuki's rms and yzs and wrs have happened to have ridden along the way but at no point have we both i think ever stopped to think about wow that is so tall that's the bike that we need to write for our story now little bit of butterflies but okay. yeah, yeah no no it's not like you're not nervous about it but it's Curling a job it. that needs to be done right <laughs> because i have a story to file after that Correct. so get on the bike and get on with it and we'll deal with it <laughs> did you ever drop any of these super tall machines thankfully no me either so uh-huh. we figured out a way on day 1 as, as to how to do this uh-huh. if we can you can uh thanks dash nice question uh ep 11 tires ratan rao You guys should have talked of the German car makers in India and their fascination with run flats on our roads. I loathe them. I have had three tire burst cuts, not an exaggeration. The cut was like an axe to a tree. Wow, I like how he writes. <laughs> in the span of 400 kilometers. Oh my god, that's terrible. I went over a small to medium-sized pothole that I failed to see and react in time. I did change the run flats to regular tubeless compromising the ride, but after some trial and error and raising the pressures by 3 psi I have regained ninety percent of the ride quality. Yeah, I mean, run flats are a reality of life now. I don't know if we have an option. We can opt out of them eventually. Um, it's a, it's the whole efficiency, emissions, convenience. No, it's a, it's also a bad transplant, actually. Bad transplant. Yeah, because uh, I asked, I think Michelin, mm. why run flats? Mm. And they said that the reason why the run flats were invented. was because in germany and europe in general the incident rate of tires causing problems was so low that the spare being in the car was increasingly for the mental satisfaction of the owner rather than an actual need right so they invented the run flat as a way of eliminating as much weight from the spare as possible because you'd never have a problem yeah. but when you transplant that solution to india where the roads aren't that good and the incidents related to tires are a lot more often mm. then suddenly the run flats don't work mm. so can bmw mercedes benz etc do something about it honestly if they don't manufacturing the cars to an indian specification they can't it's the global spec that you're getting here and we are not a large enough market to command our own spec yet so it's a matter of time either our roads will get better or our market will become large enough for us to command our own spec until then run flat bro yeah and the country is so vast even like and we are getting better roads but if something were to happen somewhere happened i remember mm, bharat reddy's 7 series hmm. we arrived at the race track and he was on the phone organizing tires for his car <laughs> because he'd managed to lose two run flats <laughs> on the way from bangalore uh, to chennai which is a fantastic four lane highway uh-huh. oh my god it's terrible that uh, this is the second example is of my cousin he also had a x3 and he lost two tires on one side because he said he hit that pothole um at a speed in which at which he'd done with his previous vehicle a number of times and yeah, yeah i remember you telling me about this yeah. yeah yeah so this run flat issue i think bmw has become the became the poster child back then for run flats but everybody has them today and um, yeah. yeah anyways get a camry kartik shridhar is next 
Love the points about having a guy to check the used vehicle out. Things I would like to add are check the vehicle out both during the day and night. Testing it during the night time will reveal a whole lot of issues like glass pane visibility, the headlight situation, etc. Check the insurance expiry date and if it is expiring anytime soon, then negotiate the differential amount of the book value of the car or bike. If the car is being sold anywhere near the 100,000 mark, 1 lakh kilometers, then it'd be better to do a simple health check to see if there are any upcoming replacements for wear and tear which would add to the cost of the vehicle. And most importantly, do a parivahan check to see if there are any chalans pending for the registered vehicle. Hey, uh, those are excellent points. Excellent, excellent. Right? And, and one way to uh, get ahead of this is if you can download the manual of the vehicle that you intend to purchase and flip ahead to where the scheduled maintenance is, you'll see where the big maintenance points are. So, for example, you see a lot of Ducatis on sale at around the 23 to 27,000 kilometer mark. And that's because their Desmo service is at <laughs> 30,000. So, what the owner is trying to get rid of is a motorcycle that will cost a lakh of rupees to do the Desmo service for. So, if you know specifically which machine you're trying to buy, look up the periodic maintenance schedule. Mm. He makes an excellent point. You know that if it says 58,000 and there's a major thing coming at 60, you can take that expense out of the vehicle's cost and say, no, I know that you won't have to pay for it. I shouldn't be paying for this. Absolutely. Somebody else also made a point about checking the no claims bonus on the insurance. It should be full. And if it is not, you should be asking questions as to why the NCB is missing. Right. Karthik, love the point about testing it at night. I think great idea. F12. Okay, now we come to used. <laughs> so we missed that a little bit. Hmm. This is Charlie John. And he says, I stopped biking somewhere around 2014-15. Wanted to get back. It's not sure what type of bike to buy. So two months, he rented a bike from Royal Brothers. And once he got used to biking again, went and bought a new bike. He spent about 20,000 rupees on renting different bikes and scooters. And he doesn't regret it. Because if he had spent over one and a half lakhs on a new bike and then found out that he didn't like it, then it becomes much more expensive to sell it and then buy another bike. Thank you for the tip on the used car and bike. I would say, Charlie, thank you for this tip. I think where people can rent no, bikes like this. First of all, welcome back to motorcycling. <laughs> the, the big unlock for me is that you're back on a bike and that's a huge thing for me. I think that's awesome. And second, this is exactly what I would do. Hmm. I would rent, ride the bike for a day on an unrestricted test ride to get a sense of, does this fit into my mental mm. pattern of motorcycling or not, and then finally commit money to a motorcycle, which I can now do research on, right? Where I can say, okay, is it reliable? What are the forums saying? And I can do all of that after I've established that the basic feelings I'm getting from the motorcycle work for me. And I think that's awesome. That's a great tip. Thank you so much. Moving on to episode 13, Small Vehicles. This is Vivek Arga. He's talking about back when he was in college in 2006, his friends had big bikes, RDs, Charismas, 150cc, and he was the only one on an Activa. And he used to, you know, he had to work really hard to keep up. But then he said he used to just uh, slow down once he got tired and started to enjoy the breeze and the scenery, just chill at 60 kilometers an hour. And he says he's so glad he had that experience. Now he says uh, <laughs> tomorrow he will have a faster motorcycle. But he'll still be grateful for the time on the Activa. <laughs> I think that's awesome. I think uh, yeah, no, there's slower two pace there, There's is two awesome. interesting points in that. <laughs> First of all is if you're in a group ride, mm. you are going to a destination with other people, but you're still alone on your own machine and you must ride your own ride. Mm. Whatever the pace is, whatever your comfort level is, nothing should make you step out of that because that's when the mistakes start to happen. Those mistakes can have 
very very serious consequences mm. so the fact that you tried for a while i'm not happy about but the fact that you settled back into a pattern that you and the activa were happy about i think that is fantastic that's, that's how it should be yeah right and second if there is a group of people who look down upon you because your machine is not of the same size or capability as theirs you need to find a better group because to me motorcycling is about inclusion and not about exclusion it's one of the things that we have learning very slowly that just because i have a suzuki and you have a yamaha it means that we it's us against the rest of the world it doesn't mean me versus you because i come from iwata and you come from somewhere else i mean come on let's grow up a little bit yeah uh, but i think he was lucky i think you're saying i mean he had good no, friends no i think he was in a good group, good group and he yeah. did the right thing by settling down and doing his own stuff that was a great stuff. point to me and fantastic good job moving on pramod kumar absolutely nailed the message on the head uh, um this is applicable for all material things not just motorcycles cars everywhere in the world and more so in india material stuff um more often than not are connected with status and hence don't always include passion and experiences into a buy we want to be seen as owning something rather than actually having fun using it our whole economy is built on this behavior if we think from a passion utility angle the bikes cars phones that we own today are easily capable of bringing us happiness if used appropriately Hmm. It's true but I think it's a phase of of the growth of a society right we have to go through the status phase before we can arrive at okay status is a thing and it's not central to everything and then we can express our passions as we really see fit hmm. so your what what he's saying is absolutely spot on but in the same breath I think we have to go through this before we can come to the other side like I used to find it so perplexing like when I first went to Europe and then you'd go see all these you know Mercs BMWs and whatever roaming around the streets and they would have no badges right and you'd be like why like and people pay money to not have badges yeah, on their cars yeah, yeah, yeah. they just wanted to be what it is i don't have to tell you what engine i'm driving which is pretty cool i thought yeah, yeah so in in japan do you remember when we went to the megapolis i think it was called the big toyota showroom with the little museum and the showroom and everything hmm. they had a badge wall hmm. which had different badges and we were very confused because we'd never seen many of these badges and there were lots of these cars that were wearing these odd badges hmm. and they said no everybody has a toyota with a toyota badge so you can also change the toyota badge to any of these badges oh wow that is so cool because they moved on to the other side where having a toyota is okay you have a toyota everybody has a toyota but mine has a different badge <laughs> oh crazy episode 15 delivery day hmm. this is aditya he says he enjoyed the episode and be solution oriented rather than problem oriented part he loved that and uh, his basically comment talks about the day he took delivery of his car which mm. was a uh, hyundai and he told the staff there that he wanted to do it as quick as possible he didn't want any of the fanfare uh, but he was shocked to see a photo frame of him and his wife taking delivery of their car in under 2 minutes after the handover mm. he was like he's basically questioning when did they even print it and it sits on his tv unit now and there's no way that his wife will let him remove that <laughs> <laughs> well hopefully it's a good memory that is sitting there on your tv shelf and reminding you of a good day when the car came into your family but uh, it's strange right because it's a very important day in your life with your cars and motorcycles and we all celebrate slightly differently and in this particular case this Hyundai dealer surprised you by giving you a frame and a photograph of you receiving the car and i think that's awesome i remember that when varun and i went to pick up uh, his aerox huh. from the yamaha dealer in pune 
I went with him for moral support, mm. but it was very important for Varun to, for, to have me take the photograph of him taking the cover off and all of that, and that was his way of celebrating. And I airdropped the photographs immediately to him and stuff. But it's not how I do stuff. Mm. Like I think it's pure luck that there is a photograph of me receiving the KTM. <laughs> If there was no photograph, I'd totally be okay mm. because the KTM outside on a real road somewhere being ridden to me is the real photograph. Mm. So in my head, my first KTM photograph. Is at the Shirwal where all the chai shops are. Mm, It's mm. with the luggage on it, and we, I'm heading to either the racetrack or IBW. I forget. But oh. to me, that is the first photograph I remember of uh. my KTM Duke three ninety, not the showroom one. Uh. It's just not how my memory works. My memory of my first Duke also is when it came home, and I took off all the stickers. It was just black. That's that's my memory of it. I don't remember the rest of it. Okay, um, move on. But the answer is laser printers. Yeah. Yeah, actually, if you're from Hyundai and if you're doing it in two minutes, awesome job. How do you do it? Let us know if that's right, huh? Aranga, sir, I have a request. Please make a detailed podcast on motorcycle books that you've read and how they impacted you in the age where social media was not a thing. Is he calling us old? Yes, um, he is. We are old. It's okay. Uh, also about the motorcycle books, which are on your TBR, to be read list. You're, you're not two brothers racing. Which is what we thought TBR was back in the day. Even I've read a few good books: Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is a terrible book. <laughs> I love it. Jupiter's See, Travels. How can you love that book? I love it. What is in that book that you I, loved? It's a trip. I don't know. I can't even. It's a trip. It has nothing trip. to do with motorcycles. No, it has nothing to do with motorcycles. Nothing at all. Okay, then we're on the same. Yeah, page. it's, it's not. It has book. nothing. It has nothing to do with motorcycles. But it's Sorry. a trip. Hmm. I couldn't get that book out of my head. I have a very, 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 very low opinion of Mr. Persig's book. Jupiter's Travels, One Life to Ride, and I have many on my TBR. No matter how good a podcast, movie, or any visual experiences, it cannot give us the intensity of reading a book. So please give us some good titles. I do remember watching Shumi Sir's brief book recommendation video two to three years ago on Instagram. So it'd be great if you can make one on one podcast on books. You can also make a series out of it, like car books, motorcycle books, whatever, uh, other automotive stuff. Uh, okay, I understand where this is going. Yeah. One motorcycle book, one car book, and one general book that you'd recommend that everybody should read. Uh, boring. Um, no, because mine will be boring. That's fine. Uh huh. So the book does the book shouldn't be boring. Your recommendations can be as boring as you want to make them. So my book uh, for cars, the the one that I would ask everyone to read, if you can find one, mm -hmm. is the Automobile Association's The Book of the Car. It oh is, yeah, it's such a great book. It's such a fantastic, beautiful book which yeah. explains how a car works. Yeah, and it's just done so beautifully. That cover itself is gorgeous, and it's not a book to read as a story or something. But back, I mean, now we were at that cusp where we are moving from mechanical vehicles to electric vehicles, so the moving parts are far lesser. But back then, if you wanted to know. What an inline four looked like and why it was what the characteristics were. You went to that book. You did it. In fact, the first one I got it was from a friend of mine, Dheeraj. Uh, his father had rebuilt his standard Herald using that book, nice. and he was so proud of that book. He loved it so much that he wouldn't let anyone touch it. So I think Dheeraj kind of sneaked it out for me, uh, so that I could photocopy it, and then I did photocopy it. But I went and uh, in Bombay Fort Fort yeah, where yeah, the yeah. book uh, yeah. the footpath wala the bookshops yeah yeah you can find them there mm -hmm. right people have discarded them and I picked up two copies once when oh, I found nice. them oh I love that 
so that's for me for cars okay uh, motorcycles motorcycles four stroke performance tuning oh what a great book too <laughs> that that book was yeah it was filled with marks everywhere everything you didn't understand you went over it again and again and mm. again until you did and alexander graham bell alexander graham bell mm. that was my, my and non automotive book number 3 non automotive like anything like a open subject what would you recommend oh, wow. people read i read a lot of fantasy so mm. like for me um um lord of the rings was something i couldn't stop reading mm. so that was one but now there's one there's terry pratchett mm. uh again fiction mm. and he is hilarious mm. he's hilarious so it's a fictional world and it's just completely like there are some books where you'll physically be doubled over laughing and it's just hilarious it's like slapstick humor mm. so yeah i enjoy that all right book recommendation for me the best motorcycle book ever written to me is what i've already said before melissa holbrook pearson's the perfect vehicle if you haven't read it you absolutely must everything that you've ever thought in your head saying motorcycles make me feel like this she has captured at some level or the other in a book which is insane it's not a big fat book it is slightly hard to find it usually isn't cheap it's usually about 1500 bucks but it's so 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 totally worth it car books are very hard for me but i like the entire series that arthur haley did exploring various industries mm-hmm. so there's hotel there's airport and so on and so forth just read the entire series because it it gives you a sense of in a fictionalized form as to how the entire industry functions and it's very cool to read so i don't really have a car book recommendation honestly but the entire arthur haley series will actually work really well non automotive to me uh, there's three actually there's the set which is fountainhead and iron uh, and atlas shrugged iron rand's two epic books read fountainhead first read atlas shrugged next think about what she's really saying don't get lost in the idea of objectivism is unreal there are a couple of ideas that she projects about you do you which are very very powerful ideas uh, it really really uh, i think will help and the third book that i want to recommend is a fiction book called demon d a e m o n demon by uh, daniel suarez it's sort of science fictiony fiction mm. but it is such a kick ass book and it's not a children's book so uh, i'm telling there's three pages of stuff that is slightly adult but that book is just insanely good to read it's a fiction book that i've read eight times nine times something mm. like that so it's it's insane uh, great book ooh sorry yeah. rata christi poiro all poiros all poiros f16 accessories mm. you've just written many commenters Hmm. dash cams are essential accessories i apologize you are right i have no argument there what are you being sarcastic again no because there are so many instances now of um, fraud people are there are, i don't know you've not seen them no because people are actually coming in falling on cars to extort money effectively so this is becoming more and more common um instances of motorcyclists coming and uh, having an accident with a car because the bigger vehicle is at fault so dash cam has become effectively a um a parallel for insurance in that sense i don't know that i want to participate in this festival of worrying and fraud so i still don't think dash cams are essential but i trust his judgment if he thinks they are then they should be i mean that's the thing like would i have uh there are many things that i would say that screw it you can 
do without it. I can understand a lot of people saying that, hey, it just cuts my stress out. And okay, I get it. Second, auxiliary lights are essential accessories. What do you think? <laughs> you know, <laughs> not for me. Yeah, so again, we disagree on this because on his Hayabusa, he runs completely <laughs> stock headlights, which are nearly useless, to be honest with you. We tried to upgrade them. I what I can see. We, we tried to upgrade <laughs> them. We got a set of LED headlights for his bike and then eventually we never fitted them. I, on the other hand, do ride in the night quite a bit to go to the racetrack with and I discovered that lights were essential. In the process, I figured out what the rules are, okay? Rules are, they must be mounted below the level of the headlight. They cannot be mounted higher. So if you're looking at a 4x4 with a roof-mounted set of lights, that's illegal. One. Mm. Two, you cannot have them uncovered during the day. It's not about having them on or off. They must be covered during the day by Indian law. And three, they can't have more than half the wattage of your headlight. That rule is actually damn funny because back in the day when there were only bulbs, that meant that if you had a 90-100 headlight, which is like a car headlight, then you could have a 50-watt bulb running your fog lamp. Today, a 50-watt LED light is way more powerful than your 100-watt <laughs> headlight, right? It's a huge loophole to have, but it is a genuine loophole. The thing about auxiliary lamps and why they are so heavily uh, enforced against by the police is because they are a tool to be extremely impolite with. And we do this with a complete lack of consideration very, very often. So you'll have them on during the day. If you're riding a BMW GS, please stop. Um, on various cars to uh, Isuzu's Resist. high cars, which have lights mounted at the level of the rear view mirror of the guy in front, you're just being impolite during the day. You're blinding them during the night. Just be considerate. The whole thing about why they regulated the headlight shape itself is just a matter of consideration saying you need to be on low beam and not blinding the guy because they need to see where they're going as much as you need to see where you're going. I use aux lamps all the time, but I make sure that I use my weakest ones if I'm in traffic and they're mounted really low so they can't blind anybody. And I use my most powerful ones only when there's nobody ahead of me and only for that much time as long as the road is clear and never else. I am super diligent about it because I know how much of a problem I can cause by being careless with it. Can those thingies kind of orientation change over time? Like get rattled around and the focus shifts? They can. And it is a good idea for you to, say when you're doing your chain every week, it might be a good idea for you to just quickly, just move your lights by hand and see if they start to move. And if they start to move, you need to tighten them. I find that every three, four, five weeks, they will move a little bit, depending on how you mounted them on your bike and how much that part vibrates. Like for example, engine bars, which is a very common place to mount. The engine bars are mounted to the engine, to the primary source of vibration. So they will come loose over time, even if you put Loctite and everything. So a periodic, just, just shake them and see what happens. And what's your adjustment process? So I like all my spotlights to be on this side of the bike because that beam is more controlled. So I'm less likely to blind oncoming traffic. So this is where my spotlights go and they're angled vertically parallel to the ground. So they're not, not rising, which is bad for them. They're not falling, which makes the hotspot fall very close to the bike. So it's as little blinding as possible while serving my purpose of having the left side of the bike show me the distance. This is the side where the floods go, which have a spread. And I usually orient them slightly to the right, so it lights up the verge a lot more than the road. So between the two, I have a fairly wide coverage. And today I run two lights, one less powerful one and one more powerful one. And I almost never use them together. So if I'm in a part of a city where the streetlights don't work, I'm relatively alone, but I'm not sure of the road. I use the lower power ones. Out on the highway, it's 2 a.m. There's nobody really around, but I want to make time. I might use all of the lights. Okay. 
just wants to write fast all the time chill out enjoy whatever you can see write accordingly okay uh, if you have run flights you'll need oxlams though just saying what <laughs> hey remember they both hit potholes that they <laughs> <Yeah>. couldn't see <laughs> Yeah okay app 17 uh, is about travel this is bodhisattva and roy he has been touring for 16 years considers himself uh, considers himself to be an explorer um would ride to the end of the road continue on foot gangotri chopta um uh, found trustworthy local people to let him park his motorcycles and he's talking about um where he's just been out on riding holidays uh up at the crack of dawn riding till sunset day after day um so he says that he on on those kind of rides he's also felt that he misses out on he felt like he was missing out on something um so he, if he could just step off the saddle and walk a bit is what he's written mm. so he did that exactly uh in february he says a 3 and 1/2000 km loop around rajasthan and eastern mp um so he clocked a lot of uh, kilometers on day 1 started early uh got to the destination which was bikaner by 12:30 parked his bike hired an auto and went around looking at all the Super. all the forts and havelis so touring on a motorcycle this line is really sweet touring on a motorcycle is wonderful and every time i ride out i only feel gratitude that i'm able to live my dream that's so cool that is an awesome line and that's an awesome trick right mm. so the more i ride my motorcycle the more lost i get in riding it mm. and that takes away from my ability to see the place i am at mm. right so now i'm coming down to the side where i am in the same boat as bodhisattva where i have to decide whether this is a riding day or a tourism day yeah. and they don't cross over anymore a riding mm. day is a riding day you pick a big distance and you go mm. and then when you have a tourism day you don't even take the bike out you hire a local mode of transport whatever it is <laughs> and then you go and see the stuff that you wanted to and you take an easy day because if the next day is another riding day then you'll have the time to ride it again and i don't really like mixing them up mm. anymore mm. so i do the same thing and i think it's an excellent way to do it the other point which is interesting is if you read the work of all the various world travelers who've been all over the earth they all come to the same conclusion ah oh. that human beings by and large are trustworthy mm. they will try to help mm. and the idea that somebody is going to try to steal your bike or harm you is so much the exception and not the rule yeah. that you will almost always no matter where you are on earth find help mm. and the only thing you have to do to stave off even that small chance is to not be stupid yeah it's insane right it's like i think sometimes it's what you carry with you if you're expecting to get meet a certain kind of people chances are you will because yeah. that's what you're looking for that's what you're looking for yeah okay satyan raina one of the most important aspects of touring has been uh, given a miss in this episode but now i'm hoping that will be a separate topic would have lo- would have loved to hear your thoughts on fitness Uh, you guys definitely touched upon the mental fitness aspect of it but a detailed conversation about physical and mental health as applicable to riding especially long distance tourings would have been very educational especially true for people like me who saved up for a decade and a half to get a proper touring bike but are now in their 40s battling bad back and carpal tunnel issues again still hoping there will be an episode dedicated to that what do you think 
is because he wasn't riding he has the issues <laughs> <laughs> it's a great point actually because if you think about motorcycle fitness that is more or less exactly how it works the more you ride the more your body adapts to the fact that this is an activity you perform on a regular basis and you need these muscles and this strength and whatever <laughs> to perform this activity so as cruel as that sounds and which is very strange coming from you why because you're not a cruel, cruel guy no, no cruel but guy. it's true i've done this to myself so many times you're not feeling well back is hurting this is happening go ride you come back you're better It's true. No, I'm not disputing. But what I'm going to say is this: If you're riding in a high-performance environment like a race track, fitness can have a very, very large role to play in what happens next. Okay, you'll be very fresh in the morning, but depending on your fitness, your freshness will wear out earlier. The more fit you are, the fresher you will feel as the time wears on and the laps come through. Right? In the touring environment, though, it's not that critical. It is a mental game. Right? For example. your butt hurts my butt hurts his butt also hurts on that touring day at what point you give up and say mm. this much pain is enough is not a physical thing it's a mental thing mm. now you can figure out a way to let the pain come later by better seats or better core fitness or whatever you can work a way around it but at what point you say enough i cannot do more than this it's totally up here it has nothing to do with your yeah. fitness yeah. fitness can help it can be a support to a core mental process that is very strong but it's not the core of the process and the second thing i think it occurred to us meeting students at the race track if you have physical problems like the carpal tunnel that you're talking about the carpal issues that you're talking about or your lower back and stuff figure out how much of it is your lifestyle how much of it requires medical intervention now and if it requires medical intervention fix it so that you can move on with your life we've met a lot of doctors in the recent past personally and through people who've encouraged people to go back to the lifestyles that they really want to live which is not a doctoral thing that used to happen 10 years ago with this is a motorcycles oh god it's just terrible just don't just, do. don't do it Band right do. Huh. we know i know of three orthopedics who've told people with back issues saying no go ride your motorcycle mm. you need to do these things first mm. whether it is fitness whether it is medication whether it is surgery you do these and you should be able to get back to that lifestyle mm. the profession of medicine is changing to support your lifestyle which i think is insane i think you're in a great sweet spot figure out why your back is hurting and why you have carpal issues if they're medical issues solve them and get back on it but what would you say about getting fitter to ride motorcycle it'll help but is it critical no what would you do anything you like walk 20 minutes a day and get your heart rate up it's better than nothing mm. if you can do push ups and pull ups even better if you can do burpees every day even better if you can go to the gym every day even better but i don't think it's central as to which level you achieve what is core is that you have some activity going on so your body knows what to do with its muscles and it's not forgetting that that's it uh if you're going to be doing performance riding and uh, like let's say track or off road Surya Namaskar is an easy place to start, but if you do Pilates, which is yoga derived, massive, massive improvement in core performance and core balance. Agreed, but do you is, need it to start? No, you don't. I mean, the whole point of this is the more you ride your bike, the more your body <laughs> will figure out what to do yeah. with the body, right? So, or just ride a lot. That's it. Yeah, just ride a lot. It's a great exercise. So, uh, Ab Eighteen speed limits. Shubham Padmajan. He says it was an informative video, and uh, he thinks uh, as Indians we can be better drivers if we have the patience to learn something before jumping in. The conclusion: um, I got a license, and now I've learned the way of driving on any type of roads in our own way, which 
eventually can lead up to a bad situation for everyone out there right fast i think he's got two great points in there hmm. first of all i think we can all stand to learn more patience than we have hmm it's the reason why we are aggressive in traffic with each other it's the reason why we have road rage it all comes back to me to patience hmm if you had the patience to let the guy pass maybe both of you would get to your destinations faster hmm. but the fact that you're looking at each other and showing fingers to each other that's just slowing both of you down it's just a lack of patience the other part is the licensing issue that i think we've discussed at some point mm. or the other where we need to have a lot more uh, aggressive testing before we can hand out licenses to people because as the roads get faster as the cars and vehicles that you're going to operate become faster the skill needed to fit into the environment to be able to operate the vehicle both mentally and physically change significantly and i don't think our licensing system today is capable of it we are still talking about corruption is being eliminated from the system but we are not talking about the skill level needed to access the system is being raised and i think that needs to happen both ways we also have to want to be able to drive better um, you don't think people want to drive better do you think they just want to drive i think it's a right to be able to drive a car it's not a responsibility the idea of that right is wrong because we don't see it that we could do harm to somebody else by while driving a car intentionally i mean nobody's going to think about it do you think that's related to the idea of rebirth <laughs> moving on this is going to be a two hour episode kisle joshi i'd say step one is for the rdo folks to enforce driving exams i'd be interested to find out and this data probably exists somewhere in the public domain as to how many people fail the driving exam almost no one I'm sure it's way lower than it should be. The system is so broken in some states in the north that I have a friend who has a license to drive a tractor. My own driving exam lasted like 10 seconds. I started to pull the seat belt and the examiner <laughs> and the examiner said, "Are aap to serious ho gaye?" Step 2 would be then to aggressively enforce rules within city limits so that folks are a little more civilized by the time they hit the highway. What do you think? His point two, I think, is I think point one is the way forward, because people, when they feel the pinch and the penalties come into place, I mean, people who already have driving licenses, right? I mean, they are already out there. If you have stricter enforcement, and which is why we we spoke about this, speed cameras are fantastic tools because they are there twenty four seven. You and can't, yeah, you can't negotiate them. and that's a great step i'm all for it yes it's making things boring but yeah it's making things better right i like it man no i, I think this the the license test thing is just a joke okay because mm. when i went to get my license uh, renewed okay delhi made it so difficult that instead of i probably shouldn't tell you this but instead of making that license being transferable to mumbai it was so complicated that i realized that if i did nothing with my delhi license it would end in 2 years anyway mm so i applied for a mumbai license and i went for the test when i wore a helmet everybody took a deep breath i'll tell you why in a minute and then a lady on an activa nearly fell off her activa five times during the test which was basically go down this road take a u turn and come back she fell nearly five times and she passed her test but the big challenge was not the lady's five times falling and passing it was why did you wear a helmet oh and i said what would be your problem if i had to wear a helmet He says, first, while you were buckling up, you made everybody wait, which is not polite. You are rude. 
Second, what if the examiner had asked everybody where their helmets were? Because you provoked the idea that a helmet was required to ride a two wheeler. You made other people's lives difficult. <laughs> this whole thing is backwards, <laughs> and what Kisle is saying is spot on. I mean, the testing is a joke. It is not taken seriously, and I think it's high time we did. Between taking testing seriously, licenses being harder to get, and speed cameras etc., making driving enforceably better, hmm. is how change will happen. When will this change happen? Leave us a comment. That was the last question. No way. Yeah, that was the last comment. Sorry, not question. That was the last comment. What question do you want to ask the audience? How long do you think we should take a break from this connect for? <laughs> Two months. You're Three. you're as evil as I think you are. You just let it out now and then. You're so evil. What question do you have? I've asked. You can you can let us know in the comments. I want you to tell me. We have twenty episodes out, including this one. So let's ignore this episode. Let's not put this as a consideration set. I also want you to ignore the Ionic Five and the Super Meteor episodes. Out of the seventeen episodes that are left of season one, what do you think was our best episode, and what do you mm. think was our worst one? Mm. We want to see where sort of the top and bottom of this playground is, so that we can do better for season two, which will start airing. I don't know when, so we'll tell you when that happens. But what that also means is this is the end of season one of this connect. We love the fact that you've interacted with us so strongly. There's been a lot of one-to-one -one conversation with you guys between Karthik, me, uh, and you, and we've absolutely loved it. Thank you so much for showing us this much support for the podcast, and we will see you season two, episode one, soon. Disconnect. <laughs>